thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Cindy O'Meara, and today I am interviewing Dr. Chris Exley. I first heard about Dr. Chris Exley when he he came under fire as a result of his research on aluminium and aluminium adjuncts in in, uh, vaccines. But let me tell you about his research. So he is a group leader in bioinorganic chemistry in the laboratory. He's a biologist um, from the University of Stirling with a PhD in ecotoxicology of aluminium. His career started in 1984 and was focused upon the intriguing paradox. How come the third most abundant element of the Earth's crust, aluminium, is non-essential and largely inimical to life? Investigating this mystery has required research in a myriad of fields from the basic inorganic chemistry of the reaction of aluminium and silicon to the potentially complex biological availability of aluminium in humans. He is fascinated by the element silicon in relation to living things, which, as the second most abundant element of the Earth's crust, is also almost devoid of biological function. One possible function of silicon is to keep aluminium out of biology, and this forms the oh, sorry, this forms a large part of the research um, in his group. He's interested in biological silification as well. So I decided that I really wanted to uh, interview Dr. Chris Exley for the Nutrition Academy, but I felt that this information was so important, and it's more important now uh, with what's happening. Uh, in the Samoas, um, in Samoa at the moment, with the mandatory vaccination of the MMR due to the measles outbreak. And, and that's a whole other conversation. But what I wanted is I wanted to introduce you to Chris Exley um, because for 25 years he was a scientist that nobody took any notice of. It's only been in the last couple of years because he's figured out exactly what happens to aluminium as it enters the body as an adjuvant in vaccines and it is because of this he has come under a lot of fire. You will hear uh, as he speaks um, how scientific he is, I actually ask a question and he says, Cindy, I'm a scientist. So, and I look for fact and research to, to for this. So, you know, he puts me in my place and I, I love it. So enjoy this amazing interview with a very humble scientist that has um, had a realization and is now trying to tell the world, but the, a lot of the world doesn't want to listen. Enjoy. All right. The first question I'd like to ask you, uh, Dr. Exley, is um, how did you go from loving fishing, being at Sterling, and ending up looking at aluminium in living systems? Yeah. Um, well, it's actually quite, a, in many ways, serendipitous because uh, for the final year of my undergraduate biology degree at Sterling, I had to do a research project and I really wasn't, I really hadn't got any particular ideas at that time. And I had a sort of, my my big sister who was doing a psychology degree at London University, I, I had some sort of conversation with her. And the next thing I knew, I received something in the post, because these are the days when we didn't send things by by email or anything of that sort. I received an envelope in the post, and in the envelope was a paper, a scientific paper from Scientific American. And it was all about acid rain and about how fish were dying. And it it had a mention of the possible role of aluminium in it. And since, of course, I was living in Scotland at, uh, at the time in Stirling, and indeed acid rain was something which we knew was influencing um, living things there, I thought, mm, well, aluminium sounds interesting. So I went to find somebody um, uh, at the university who might be able to supervise a project looking at aluminium toxicity in fish. And that's what I did. So I have my sister to either thank or to blame, whichever, whichever, whichever way uh, is most appropriate for uh, um, 
getting me into the subject of aluminium. So you wrote a paper, uh, I I don't know even know how far into your uh, research and um, I know you've been researching for some 35 years, but you wrote a paper on aluminium and autism. Can you um, explain what that paper was all about? Yeah, I can. As I explained earlier, I'm just having a little drink. Um, that's a big jump uh, from 1984 all the way through to 2018. Yeah. So it was only just been in the last twelve months. That, that no, I'm just saying. I'm 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 saying that uh, our previous conversation was 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 in was something to do with 1984. Oh, and now right. you're asking about a paper. So I'm just saying it was a big jump in time. We moved very quickly through through time there. <laughs> Listen, the 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 paper with respect to autism. We have been doing over a number. <coughs> Over a number of years, we've been working on providing the very best quality data on the aluminium content of human brain tissue. And we started to do that um, perhaps most avidly and seriously in around 2009, something of that sort. And we were beginning to put together... Uh, a library of information, of papers, of data, of how much aluminium is in the human brain. And while we were doing this, and and probably around towards the end of around 2016, we we were asked, well, have you thought about autism? Because there'd be one or two papers that suggested a link between aluminium and autism, and actually specifically aluminium in vaccines and autism. And to be absolutely frank, no, we hadn't thought about uh, a role for aluminium in autism. Um, so we made a few inquiries. We, we, checked, we, we contacted the Autism Brain Bank in the United Kingdom to ask if they had tissues available. And indeed, they did have tissues. Uh, some frozen tissue only for five individuals, and they had some fixed tissue uh, for 10 individuals. And so we put together a research proposal to have a look at that, just simply because it fitted in with the other work that we were doing uh, on other disease groups and others looking at how much aluminium is present in human brain tissue. And we did the study, and it was um, revelatory, I suppose, is is the only word I perhaps could use to describe it. I mean, it it surprised me and shocked me at the same time. Um, It did this for two reasons. The first one being that quantitatively, how much aluminium did we find? We found in the five, we could only do quantitative analysis on frozen tissue. So we only had frozen tissue for five individuals, but these are all the autism brains available in the United Kingdom, by the way. So, and we did the quantitative analysis and some of the analysis, some of the measurements we found were of the highest we've ever measured. In other words, they were just very, very high amounts of aluminium. And these were in individuals as young as 13 years of age. The oldest individual I seem to remember was 50 years of age. So, we were finding really quite high levels, well, very high levels of aluminium in very relatively young people, something neither we had never seen before or indeed no one had ever seen before. These were the first data uh, specifically on individuals who died with a diagnosis of autism, but even for other individuals, these sorts of data had not been seen before. They were unique in that respect. But I think what was more, I would say probably worrying, were the the studies we did using uh, microscopy, because we've developed over the last 10 years now, just less than 10 years, a specific way of using fluorescence to look at where aluminium is in human brain tissue. And this is a completely selective method for aluminium, and so it gives us completely unequivocal information on where aluminium is in human brain tissue. 
And when we looked, when we used this method specifically on the autism brain tissues, and now we're talking about 10 individuals, not five, because we had fixed, which can be used for microscopy, fixed tissue. In all 10 individuals, we made what I considered to be, at the time at least, a unique discovery. And that was that nearly all of the aluminium in the brain tissue in these individuals was in intracellularly, in cells. Now that's unusual com compared to what we've seen before in diseases like Alzheimer's, where mostly we found aluminium associated with neuropathology or cellular debris. In other words, where some sort of cell death had taken place or something of that sort, we found it outside of cells. Here we found it all, nearly all, inside cells. And not only that, the type of cells we found it in were not the neurons of the brain, not the brain cells, but the other non-neuronal cells that are involved in you know, the housekeeping cells of the brain. We call them the glial cells. Now, you know, these are the types of cells that are involved in the development of the brain, and they, they have numerous, myriad functions within brain. And they, these cells were full of aluminium. Not only that, we also saw cells which looked like, for example, lymphocytes. These are like the white blood cells of the body. Uh, we saw these cells also full of aluminium and looking like, but we couldn't, we, we couldn't be sure about that, they were crossing the blood-brain barrier into the tissue. So they were coming from the body full of aluminium and going into the brain tissue. Now, we, 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 we have no direction on this. This is a snapshot in time, these images. But we do know that these types of cells, uh, these type of, for example, white blood cells and others from the body, on occasion, do go into brain tissue because they, the brain signals to them that it needs help. And it's usually in response to, say, some sort of inflammatory event in the brain. And the brain signals we need help and these type of cells come in to help out so we were seeing these type of cells full of aluminium coming into or looking like they were coming into the uh, autism brain tissue now i think apart from the fact that this was all brand new standout observations these we have also done a lot of work recently looking at what happens at the injection site of a vaccine to the aluminium, the aluminium adjuvant used in that vaccine? And one of the things we've been showing is that the aluminium adjuvant is taken up by cells that infiltrate the injection site. And the images that we had from that of these of, of cells similar to lymphocytes, actually, if not identical, coming into the injection site of a vaccine and taking up aluminium. These images were in the brain tissue. And you know, while it's only circumstantial in many ways, this suddenly puts you know, the proverbial uh, light bulb event over your head. You suddenly see a link between what can happen at a vaccine injection site and a possible way that that aluminium could then get transported into brain tissue. And so we wondered, I think quite uh, realistically, whether or not this was a mechanism whereby aluminium from the injection site of a vaccine could be transported into brain tissue. And in this case, autism brain tissue. How does that oh. go? Yeah, no, thank you. I, I appreciate um, what you were seeing. So in the um, 35 years of, of um, understanding aluminium in a um, living system and coming up to where you are with autism, did you also see it in other diseases as well where you, this aluminium that um, is in the brain tissue of, say, Alzheimer's, did you see it in that, multiple sclerosis, were these diseases also seen? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've looked at quite a few different um, 
types of diseases now. Uh, and we always find aluminium in the brain tissue. <clears throat> um, the other disease where we found amounts of aluminium very similar to those we saw in autism is something called familial Alzheimer's disease. Familial Alzheimer's disease is a rare form of Alzheimer's. Um, perhaps two or three percent of all cases are familial. And the, the uh, familial means there's a genetic predisposition to the disease such that individuals develop Alzheimer's much earlier in life. They could develop it in their late 30s, early 40s. They don't necessarily die of it uh, more quickly. They can continue with the disease up into their 70s and 80s. But it's the fact that the disease begins very early in life as opposed to more usually in the sporadic form of the disease where it would be late 60s, maybe even 70s before we see the disease. Mm. Now, we saw in familial Alzheimer's disease uh, some of, uh, at the time when we measured those, which was before the autism, they were the highest values we'd ever seen. And some of those remain the highest values of aluminium in brain tissue we have seen. However, when you look at those, <clears throat> the aluminium predominantly is extracellular. It's not inside cells. It's associated with in the brain tissue with neuronal cell death. So the, uh, the difference from a microscopy point of view of where the aluminium is is completely different to the autism tissues. So that's what made the autism brain tissues stand out was this intracellular inside cells location of the aluminium and the type of cells it was found in. So again, in the autism brain tissue, we did find some aluminium inside neurons, but very little, predominantly non-neuronal cells. In, in familial Alzheimer's disease, we're seeing it primarily uh, extracellular outside cells and associated with cellular debris, cell death and sometimes associated with neurons. So similar amounts of aluminium, but a completely different location of the aluminium. And, you know, we've, we've also looked at multiple sclerosis. We've recently looked at epilepsy. We've looked at uh, a form of Alzheimer's called um, uh, cerebral, cerebral amyloid angiopathy, CAA. And we find variations uh, in amounts of aluminium and the specific locations. But, uh, you know, this, to compare and contrast something like familial Alzheimer's disease, early stage, out, early onset Alzheimer's and autism, these are like two differences, one end of what, you know, ends of a spectrum in terms of the way the aluminium is distributed in the tissue. Could, you're often talk about this age as the aluminium age. Can we talk mm. about um, the fact that aluminium has no biochemical, like it's not even meant to be in the body, it's no use for it in the body, yet um, I've heard you say that in this day and age, aluminium is probably in every one of our cells. Can we um, discuss the aluminium age and the release of aluminium from silica and, um, and how you think that that's affected living systems? Yeah, I mean, to me, you see, I mean, one of the reasons why I worry about aluminium is that, first of all, we know that it is getting inside of our body. We have all the evidence for that. Now, when it gets inside the body, many, our bodies are regularly impacted by other toxins and other, for example, metals. And some people you know, might be aware of things like heavy metals, like mercury or cadmium or, or lead or something of that sort. When these into our body, our body actually responds to their presence. It tries to initiate its own detoxification system to remove them. It produces certain types, for example, of proteins, which can bind these metals and help to get rid of them from the body. 
Aluminium does not produce any of these sorts of signatures. In other words, aluminium is a completely silent visitor to the body. And what it suggests is that in the, you know, in biochemical evolution, we, our bodies and you know, the, where we came from has not seen aluminium before. Mm. So aluminium is an absolutely brand new toxin in our body which means that we are in no way uh, prepared for it. We have no inherent or natural mechanisms of detoxifying it. It's just all adventitious. It, everything happens through, diff, through chance. And this is a worry because we know that it can accumulate, for example, in brain tissue, and we also know that it, that it is biologically reactive. So therefore, it will react within biochemistry and biological systems, but only to produce toxicity, nothing else. Our, you know, my first piece of research showed that you could use silicon to protect against the toxicity of aluminium in fish, and that was my work, my PhD research up in Stirling. Oh. And this, this get, pr produced an example of a, a unique inorganic chemistry between these two elements. Silicon actually has almost no other inorganic chemistry and no organic chemistry, but it does bind with aluminium to form essentially inert complexes. We call them hydroxyluminosilicates. They're like clays. And actually, when I looked at this, when I looked at this more closely following my PhD research, I realized that this is the mechanism whereby aluminium has been kept out of biological systems for all of biochemical evolution up until the moment when man learned how to take aluminium ores and create aluminium metal and aluminium salts. And that was the end of the 19th century. And that's what I call now being the aluminium age because before that, we were only exposed to aluminium by uh, in very very rare occasions that something happened naturally to release aluminium from these inert stores in the earth but of course man has, has sort of circumvented that man has aluminium and aluminium ores and you there in australia you you, you have one of the most <laughs> the, the largest aluminium historically largest aluminium industries and that's because by the way Australia is one of the oldest land masses on the planet, which means that the rocks in Australia, when a mountain dissolves, when rain falls on a mountain, the mountain dissolves over hundreds of millions of years. But the first thing that comes out is the silicon, and it leaves behind an aluminium-rich ore. And Australia, because it's one of the oldest land masses on the planet, most of the silicon has been washed away and you're left with huge expanses of aluminium rich, they call it bogsite. And that's why you have such a big aluminium industry in, in, in Australia, because the aluminium ore is so rich and, and also you know, lacking in, uh, impurities. So that is, but silicon is the natural way that, uh, the, it, that aluminium has been kept out of evolutionary processes. But we, if we go against that and create aluminium metals and aluminium salts and then put them into myriad different applications that we use on a daily basis, all of a sudden we humans, but not only humans, but also plants and other animals are exposed to ex increasingly high levels of aluminium. And that's what I call the aluminium age. Yeah, and when we look at um, our cookware, so aluminium um, cookware, it's tin foil. Um, I know that it's um, in um, baby formulas. Do you know the difference between the aluminium in baby formulas compared to breast milk? Have you done that testing at all? Yeah, we've, we've published a lot of papers on this, Cindy. You can find them on the website and you can find them on my blog. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, the, the infant formulas or a scandal in my, in my view, because these are heavily, I mean, every single infant formula we've measured has had too much aluminium in it 
and many of them have really high levels of aluminium. And this is simply because of just, uh, most of the time it's contamination from processing the way in which these things are put together and made. It's because they are a, relative, they are a cheap product which is being sold as an expensive product. Mm. And you know, it, it isn't inevitable that they are contaminated with aluminium. It's simply because there is no legislation, no requirement for them not to be. And then what do we do? Well, many people have to use infant forms that the first, our infants, that sometimes for the first day of life, are exposed to really high levels of aluminium in the only thing that they eat. It, it, it's absolutely terrible. I mean, I, how it's been allowed to go on, I do not understand. But yeah, you need to have, maybe have a look at, well, I've got a recent blog on my uh, medical blog all about this, and there are, we've got many papers in this area, but it, it is a true scandal. Yeah. yeah. I'll make sure I link um, so everybody can um, read all this information. Uh, the other thing, um, you talk about the ways that aluminium enter the body. So um, I want to go back to the um, injection site, but I first want to just talk about like the lungs, the, um, you know, through eating, through um, antiperspirants. There's many ways that it seems aluminium is getting um, into our system. I'm just wondering if um, you've done anything on the geoengineering. I was talking to an environmental scientist today and I just said I was interviewing you and I said, you know, is the geoengineering true and what are the main um, minerals that they're using or what are, what are they using? And he said aluminium. So it's, mm. if there is geoengineering happening, it's falling from the sky as well. How, how is that affecting our lungs? Listen, the geoengineering story is one that suffers very much from any lack of scientific evidence. And when I say scientific evidence, you know, every single thing that I tell you has gone through peer review by an independent journal and is, and is published. So this is the way we do science. Mm -hmm. And every, all, everything I've commented on, told you about, has already been through that process. This, this is not true of geoengineering. There is no evidence good, strong scientific evidence that aluminium is being put into our atmosphere as part of any geoengineering program anywhere in the world, including in the US where they, they, they make all sorts of claims about it. And until we have that evidence, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to comment on it okay. because okay. It, it really, I don't understand why there isn't evidence, to be absolutely honest, because the amount of people who, who are involved with this now, the amount of money that seems to be spent on producing videos of chemtrails through the sky and everything else could easily be put into a relatively simple experiment. And in fact, we did it such an experiment at Kiel because I wanted to have a look at this. Yeah. So we did a 12-week experiment using the weather station here at Keele University. This is a proper weather station, 12 weeks, during which time there was, the sky was full of chemtrails and everything else, as, as everybody normally sees on a regular basis, and we found no evidence for aluminium in rainfall. Now, that doesn't mean that it isn't happening, but we need to get the evidence for that. And, you know, a lot of people in the geoengineering who believe in it, they get mad with me about this, saying this. But, you know, they've got to realize that, as you've mentioned earlier, I've spent all of my life, academic life, nearly all of my life, trying to understand aluminium. And indeed, that means trying to protect us from it. And if I thought that aluminium salts were being put as aerosols into our atmosphere, so that we were being exposed to them via that method, I would be the loudest opponent of that on this on this earth. But I need we need evidence for that. And these people who are proponents of it but never produce the evidence, in it, you know, that they need to sort themselves out and get some evidence. And then we have a story. Then there's something worth campaigning about. However, 
you know, you don't, you don't need geoengineering to know that in your everyday life, you are absolutely exposed to aluminium. Every single thing that you do, I mean, we sort of make the assumption that our main route of exposure is through our diet. Not necessarily. It is absolutely true that uh, just normal air pollution, which you often hear described as um, small particulates, they sometimes call them PM 2.5, PM 5, PM 10. But this particulate material, the vast majority of it is aluminium based. So we are taking in aluminium in polluted air into our lungs. Um, so from an environment, just simply from the what is present in the environment, there is aluminium there. And that is just part of um, burning of fossil fuels and everything else that we do with respect to uh, emissions that get into uh, our, our environment. Um, but not specifically, you know, to do with things like geoengineering. But then you've got, you know, as we've talked about a little bit already, aluminium is in all sorts of different types of medications. Aluminium is, of course, used in many different forms of cosmetics. Um, uh, a lot of things that people do perhaps for their uh, personal pleasure, like smoking, exposes you to aluminium drugs expose you to aluminium the new the new fad of vaping exposes you to aluminium so there's very day life where you know you're not exposed to aluminium i mean this is one of the reasons why you know, one of the things that we found from our original research looking at the relationship between silicon and aluminium was that if you uh, drank a mineral water that was rich in silicon, you produce aluminium in your urine. In other words, it helps you to excrete aluminium from your body. And so we, if anybody asks me, if anybody's worried about aluminium, I say, look, drink a silicon-rich mineral water on a regular basis. Try to drink maybe, I mean, I, I, I drink perhaps uh, around a liter a day of a silicon-rich mineral water, and I will do it every day, and I will continue to do it for the rest of my life. Because one thing I know that it's doing is helping to reduce the amount of aluminium that's in my body. So we can do things for ourselves that the governments and regulatory organizations are not doing. And they will not protect us from aluminium. I mean, this is almost absolutely certain they cannot afford for aluminium to be linked really strongly to any you know major human disease this aluminium the, the aluminium genie came out of the bottle a long time ago it, it try it trying to put that back in is going to be impossible but the you know the i often say that we all remember when not that long ago uh everyone decided that all of us now that tobacco wasn't good for us and smoking wasn't good for us and a number of different sort of lawsuits followed etc well, well these would be just uh, quite you know minuscule in comparison to what would happen if we showed that say aluminium was a was a cause of alzheimer's disease i mean it, it, it stock markets would crash all around the world there would just be total pandemonium and that's why i think it's going to be very, very difficult for anybody, any government, anywhere to admit this, regardless of the research that people like ourselves are doing. Yeah. So we have to look after ourselves in this respect, and we have to protect ourselves from aluminium. And I love um, how you say Fiji water, which is in my neck of the woods, um, to drink Fiji water, which is available um, in our grocery stores, and I think it's two fifty um, a litre. So just for anybody who wants some... Um, silica-rich um, water. It's Fiji water, F-I-J-I, the country. So I... I okay, you, you've, got, you've got one in Australia as well. I think oh. I told you about it. And I, I think the, there is an Australian one I, that a company contacted me about. Um, I forget the name of them now, but definitely you, you have a, a, man, a mineral water. And it's unusual because in Australia, of course, I've already said to you that being an old, an old way, but... If it's an artesian water, that means water that comes from very deep within the ground. That's where actually the silicon get, can get washed to. So it may be that it's an artesian water. I'm not sure. But a bit like Fiji is an artesian water. Yeah. Well, I'll find out. About but it. Yes. 
So does that... I mean, I don't, you know, people often say to me, people people think that I am in some way benefiting from saying drink silicon rich mineral water. We do not benefit at all. We do not get any funding from any of these uh, silicon rich mineral water companies. Um, The best that we've had is that the one that I'm drinking now comes from Malaysia and uh, it's called Spritzer. Um, and Spritzer actually provided us with their mineral water for our clinical trials free of charge. So that helped us. But that's the only thing we've had is free mineral water for the clinical trials. We we benefit in no other way. And, you know, so, do you so think, I just... Do you think the silicon board is bringing out the extracellular as well as the intracellular? Do you think it's, it's drawing yes, it from the it, brain? It is. If you, if you imagine that in your body, all of the, I mean, essentially, all of the aluminium is in some form of equilibrium with the aluminium that's in your bloodstream. And the way a silicon-rich mineral water works is that a small molecule called silicic acid, which is uh, uh, the soluble form of silicon found in silicon-rich mineral waters, goes, follows water into your blood. It just, it, it goes wherever water can go. And it is able, as long as it is, is, it is at a high concentration, and that's why it's got to be a silicon-rich mineral water, at a high concentration in your blood, it's able to bind aluminium in your blood and help that aluminium to be excreted in your kidney. And of course, if you take the aluminium away from the blood, then it gets replaced from your tissues. Um. And then it gets taken away and it gets replaced. It gets taken away and eventually you lower what we call the body burden of aluminium. Now, it's not an instant thing. I tell people, you know, you've got to commit to this. It could take months or even years before you lower your body burden of aluminium to extent that it's nice and low and should be you know, relatively safe for you. But then you need to keep drinking because if you stop, you just start topping up your aluminium in your body again. So that's, it's a little bit of a commitment to looking after yourself and yeah i mean it costs and i understand also it costs a lot of money i mean these the the i i buy mine from my home use you know it's costing me 70 pounds a month almost just on mineral water but hey you know we we believe that it's keeping aluminium that it's protecting us from the possible it's possible toxicity so we think it's worth it but not everybody can can afford to do that and i understand that one of the things that we get asked all, all, yeah, one of the things that we get asked all the time about this are about the silicon or silica supplements that are available everywhere in health food shops and stuff. And none of these do the same do do this. So we have to be very careful. I have something called a silicon fact sheet that I send out hundreds of times to different people who ask this question over and over and over again. But essentially, you can. The only way that we have found in 30-odd years of research that we can uh, help to remove aluminium from the body is using silicon-rich mineral waters. And if there were other ways of doing it, we would be happy to you know, promote them as well, but there aren't. And I think it's, it's important that you know, anyone's listening to, your, to, to this interview realizes that. Now... Um, the other thing that I wanted to go back to is the adjuvants in vaccines. Um, so I, I heard you speak about um, the two different ones that are being used and um, could you address both of them and um, how they one changes fast and the other one changes slow? Could you address those two and, and what's the difference to with them and how they affect the body? Yeah, well, there are actually... There are actually three aluminium salts that are used um, in uh, vaccines. Uh, Two of them we are able to study because we are able to buy them. One of them, which is the Merck um, aluminium adjuvant, which is called um, aluminium hydroxyphosphate sulfate, we are not able to study because Merck will not release it. It's their own product and they refuse to let anybody look at it. But essentially, they're all acting in a similar way, but they do, the three different products do have different properties. Um, and those properties can affect whether, whether or not 
for example, at the injection site, you have a very strong reaction at the injection site, whether there is what we call... When, when you get a vaccine with an aluminium adjuvant, and immediately following that, you have a little red mark. Most of that red mark, which is inflammation, is due to the aluminium adjuvant. So the aluminium adjuvant causes toxicity at the injection site. And that's what makes the, the vaccine work because that toxicity brings in all cells from around the body to come and see what's happening there. And in doing so, they pick up the antigen that you are being vaccinated against and they take it off and take it off to the lymph node. That's all part of the initiation of the immune response. Without the aluminium adjuvant, none of these vaccines would work at all, not at all. So they absolutely require the aluminium adjuvant to work. And yes, not all aluminium adjuvants are equivalent. Some work in different ways. And one suspects that the choice by the vaccine manufacturers on which adjuvant to use is more to do with, well, I, th I think it's to do with two things. One is they, for, for, they need to know that the adjuvant has produced a strong antibody titer for that particular vaccine. That's the first thing. And secondly, they want to, they want obvious adverse events to be as to be as little as possible. In other words, they don't monitor for very long, but within they don't want you know within a within a few minutes of you having a vaccine, they don't want you to be having some sort of adverse event, or even maybe within a, within a few hours or days after that, then they, they seem to be not bothered because they hardly ever monitor anything beyond a few days, but. If you could adjust the aluminium adjuvant so that the um, the response to the vaccine is minimal, then it's much better. People think people think automatically that that vaccine is 100% safe. Mm. It's not, of course, but that's what they think. Do you think that they can um, make vaccines um, safer if they didn't use the aluminium adjuvant? Because in the beginning, you explained to us the way when in the injection site and with the lymphocytes and the macrophages, how it gets into the brain. If aluminium wasn't used, um, could it make vaccines safe? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the reason why we use an aluminium adjuvant, uh, uh, any adjuvant actually, but aluminium is the one most usually used, is to make the cost of the vaccine as low as possible. So the antigens uh, are the expensive part of a of a of a vaccine, and uh, if and as as I said, if you don't have the aluminium adjuvant present, the amount of antigen that they use would not produce any benefit whatsoever. You would not get an immune response. So if they didn't use an adjuvant, they would have to be much more clever in their use of the antigen. They still, you know, they. The other type of vaccine that doesn't have an adjuvant, of course, gives you a mild form of the disease, and that's how it works. But in the case of the uh, adjuvanted ones, they need the adjuvant to be able to produce the response. Now, I believe actually that not a safer uh, adjuvanted vaccines, but you could even have much safer aluminium adjuvanted vaccines. Essentially, they they put absolutely no research into the safety of these vaccines. Their only interest and the only actual, so for example, there is a sort, there is a sort of limit to how much aluminium is present in a vaccine. And you say, oh, well, that's interesting. Why is that then? You think it must be because of safety reasons. No, it's not. It's simply down to, getting the right antibody titer. So it's, you know, no one is even considering that they need to uh, change the formulation of a vaccine to take account of the fact that many people are getting ill following the, a vaccine that contains an aluminium adjuvant. It, 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 it's by the by to them. If money was spent in this area, vaccines could be significantly many times safer than they are. 
But if you don't have to spend the money, why would they? You know, this is not our vaccines come from commercial organizations. They're only they only ex exist to make money, nothing else. People seem to live in this misconception that the pharmaceutical industry is there for the good of man. It's there to make money. That's why it's there. And their only thing that they want to do is make money. Of course, we are supposed to regulate that <laughs> to make sure that what they do is safe. And it's us and our governments and our regulatory industries and uh, organizations that, that are failing us for many reasons, mostly political, of course. But if we had a completely independent, if we, if our governments had a completely independent laboratory that tested the safety of pharmaceutical products, including vaccines, by for which, by the way, the, the uh, pharmaceutical companies have to pay, then we would now we would have safe products because it would be something funded by the taxpayer to make sure that the taxpayer is receiving a safe product. But right now, none of that happens. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it, it's, an, it's just a, it, it's clear that this sort of situation has to change because otherwise I do not expect a company that exists purely to make money to have to, to worry about these things if they don't have to, if there are no rules and regulations for doing so. You know, vaccine manufacturers are paying out hundreds of millions of dollars every single year to account for the, it, some of the issues produced by vaccines. They don't admit to them, but they pay them out. What, can we talk about, too. Yeah. Can we talk about what happened to you you know, like you've been researching aluminium for 35 years, but it wasn't until you found a link between autism, the vaccine, and the brain, and the amount of aluminium in the brain, and how, and you actually show the whole pathway that um, how it gets into the brain. What happened to your career and uh, you personally as a result of being like obviously a scientist because I asked the question about geoengineering and you just went, there is no science, Cindy, we cannot do that. So obviously you're yeah. someone who wants the facts, you want the information, there must be science behind it. But here you are, you found this 35 years into your career and what happened to you? Yeah, well, I mean, when you, when you, I mean, I've always worked on a controversial subject, which is aluminium, so it's always been difficult to get funding to do that, but it hasn't been impossible. It only everything only became impossible when we found aluminium in autism brain tissue. And it's just like, you know, we have uncovered something which quite simply we are not supposed to. And because of that, you know, we cannot get funding from any of the usual organizations. No government organization will fund us, no major charity will fund us industry obviously is kind of funders in these areas you know we rely now and have done for about the last three or four years 100 percent on philanthropy to do our research so it, it without that we wouldn't actually be continuing what we're doing um yeah and i mean obviously i mean uh, on a personal level i i don't deal with social media very much i i don't even have a mobile phone so i don't check things like you know, social media and I don't spend hours reading stuff on the internet but I am told that there's a lot of very nasty stuff written about me and in this area by by people who simply well are clearly ignorant people I guess but a lot of very bad things have been said there's even been death threats and stuff like this and to a certain extent none of that bothers me that much I mean I as I said I don't read it um but it, but it has an influence because the same things get repeated to me from people who should matter, like my own university administration, for example. Uh, they are much more, they seem to believe much more what they read in the gutter press than what I tell them. You know, this is, this is when issues become really quite difficult. Um, you know, we, 
we're, we're one of the leading groups at Keele University research groups. We're probably the leading research group here. And yet you will not see a mention of us in any press releases from the university or anything. And that's only been since we did the autism work. You know, they are just essentially censoring us here at the university as well as, you know, we keep going. Yeah. Well, I, I do know that um, people who are listening to this, if they'd like to um, invest in your research, that I can give them a link um, to help um, with your research. Like you yeah, said, we have a... Yeah. Yeah, we have a donations link, and and uh, even though that has created some issues with Kiel, they they still allow me to have that. But, uh, so we we do uh, one can make direct donations through that link, and of course, you know, I, I suppose one of the things we always hope for is that somebody out there with 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 a significant amount of money may believe in the research that we're doing and want to invest in us, and and that's always a possibility too. You know, we have one or two uh, larger investors who make sure that I can pay my group and things like that. And then the rest of what we do is funded by the donations and, and through, for example, the, the link that I, on the bottom of all my emails, there's a link which goes to a direct donations uh, portal. I make sure. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of sad state of affairs in many ways. But, you know, I'm... Uh, I, I agree uh, with you. You, you can't... You can't change, Cindy, the science. If I thought anything that I had done wasn't good science, in fact, really good science, I wouldn't publish, I wouldn't try to publish it. We only publish the very best science. The science talks, and you know, even though I might not live long enough to see it, the science at the end of the day will be the, deci the deciding factor. And aluminum will be shown to be in my opinion, you know, something which uh, is going to be of a burgeoning problem for mankind in the future. It's already a significant issue and it is going to get worse unless we do something about it. And that will be shown. You know, I, I, I'm protecting, trying to protect myself against it. I advise many, anybody else who asks to do the same. But obviously, governments need to do that. They need to realize it. The other aspect of it is that I often talk about, you know, I, I write about this thing called the aluminium age. The aluminium age has been incredibly beneficial to us. Mm. But we're not against it. You know, we couldn't <laughs> fly between Australia and, and, and the United Kingdom without aluminium that, that we use to make the aeroplanes and the fact that it goes into the rocket fuel and things. You know, it, it is used in so many positive ways. But for anything that we use in our everyday life, you also expect that we use it safely. And for aluminium, there are no rules or regulations for anything to do in any form. You can put it in any medication. You know, I, for example, <coughs> pointed out um, that it's actually included in one of the major drugs given to people with Alzheimer's disease. I mean, can you believe that? Well, that they no. actually use it and put it in knowingly into drugs that go to people with Alzheimer's disease. And why do they use it? Because this particular drug has a yellow color on the outside. That yellow color is an aluminum lake. So this is how, this is the disdain that the industry treats this you know this subject and research with that they actually put it into a drug i mean the drug doesn't help people because no drugs for alzheimer's help anybody anyway but it, that's a different story but they still couldn't care less they include it in that so you can put aluminium in anything you put it in baby formulas you can put it in anything in medications in vaccines and you know, there's absolutely no repercussions for the damage that it does and we accept that yeah. Everyone is accepting it. I'm not accepting it. <laughs> no, and I've been listening to you. Like I remember the 80s. It was a big thing on aluminium and aluminium pots and Alzheimer's and yeah, um, and all of that. And and so I I never had aluminium pots. I got rid of everything um, that could possibly have it in there. But I and I didn't use antiperspirants. And I I stopped all that in the 80s. And now I 
I listen to you and I just think, oh my goodness, I have been not as good as I could be. So you, and, and I've been starting to drink the silicon rich water. I'm just wondering if someone has dementia um, and they drink that silicon rich water, do you think there could be a reversal of symptoms? I, I know you said it will take time. We, we've, done, we've done trials with people with Alzheimer's disease. These trials have, <clears throat> have lasted 12 weeks with people drinking silicon-rich mineral waters. And we published those data. And they're small trials. We don't have a lot of money. But we had 15 individuals who, who had Alzheimer's disease who drank a silicon-rich mineral water for 12 weeks. And three of those individuals actually showed cognitive improvements in cognitive performance, clinically significant improvements of cognitive performance in that period of time. So yes, there is a chance that if you, even if you already have a disease that is related to aluminium, like Alzheimer's disease, that you can help yourself by drinking a silicon-rich mineral water. You know, that trial with a silicon-rich mineral water in Alzheimer's disease is the best result that any treatment for Alzheimer's disease has ever seen. <laughs> but can we get money to repeat that study? Can we? No, it's impossible because it implicates aluminium in the disease. So no one will fund it. Mm. It's so, because it's just huge in Australia. I don't know what's happening around the rest of the world, but it's like people are dropping, like with dementia or Alzheimer's from 50s. They're, you know, they're being put in homes and like, um, it's not good. It's not good at all. Listen, one of the thing again, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the figures are, but because of the nature of your landmass, you you have the lowest natural silicon in your surface waters, so your drinking waters and things like that. So the natural protection that you have against aluminium in Australia is one of the lowest on the planet. Combined up the Western lifestyle, which is, which is undoubtedly something which uh, promotes uh, Alzheimer's disease, and you know, you've got something which is a real issue there. Compare, for example, with Japan. So Japan is just up the road from you, um, and you would say that on a you know, developing level, you're both the same. Japan's rate of Alzheimer's disease is a fraction of Australia's. Why is that? Well, Japan sits on volcanoes. <laughs> Their natural water supply is rich in silicon. Is that a coincidence? A country where uh, the natural water supply is rich in silicon has one, and, and is a developed country has the, one of the lowest incidence of Alzheimer's in the world. Well, so something is, dif is, is different there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I do know that dementia is actually the biggest killer uh, in women over the age of, I think it's 60 or 65. So yeah. it is, it, we obviously do have problems. Everybody says this, so like no matter what you're talking about, whether it's deuterium or um, ozone holes or Australia, we're just right in the middle of it all. <laughs> just well, what you do. Yeah. Mm. You do. Did you? Look, Chris, I just want yep. to thank you so much. We've um, spent an hour um, talking and I know yep. that my students at the Nutrition Academy are going to get so much out of this because I, I always hope to bring them information that's current and that they have tools in order to help their, you know, the people that they're working with um, to get better. And this, to me, is one more tool um, that they have, which is the silicon sure. water. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. And the, and the knowledge, of course, which is the other thing. We, we need to get everybody reading about this. So we need to make sure they, you know, they start to read about aluminium. They read my blogs. They read this, the information that's available. And they question every time they have a chance. Question their politicians. Question the industry. Ask about it. You know, the more people do that, the better chance we'll have for change. At the end of the day, people can can bring about change, which is, perhaps the only way it can be brought about so well, anyway it's been nice to talk to you yeah no this is what i do chris is i just um yeah. i teach so that they can become activists um in their local community that's you know that's the main thing and i, I just wanted to let you know that um uh, you know i my father was against vaccination he was a pharmacist so i'm um 60 next year and i've 
never been vaccinated. I've never had any drugs, no antibiotics, no painkillers, no nothing. And my kids are exactly the same. They were right. um, brought up the same way and they're in their 30s now. Well, late, uh, yeah. late 20s, early 30s. And, um, you know, like I, I don't know what my dad was thinking, but he just said, no way, my kids are not going to be vaccinated. And that was the 50s and 60s. So um, yeah. I've been following he Dal. He was a forward thinker. Yeah, he was a real forward thinker. He's actually 91, still lives at home, mm. but he's losing his mind. And I'm thinking... I'm going to get him on the silica-rich water every day. Yeah, do it. I've been do thinking it. about it ever since I heard you say it, and I just keep going. Mm. I don't want any false, you know. <laughs> I want to do it. Yeah. I'm just going to do it. You've got me more determined now to to make sure I do this for him. Yeah. Yeah, why not? Yeah, you know, there's not nothing to lose and there's uh, potentially something to gain from it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and thank you. I heard you struggling to breathe at times. <laughs> I really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Chris Exley. If you want to learn more about him, I will put everything on the show notes because um, his information is really interesting. He's just actually put a blog up uh, recently um, on his Instagram. So I'll make sure that you have all of that so you can learn more about it. Um, so join us next week on Up For A Chat where you will become part of the ripple effect that's changing the world. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.